Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, I think we've decanted for long enough. It's time to sit back and enjoy Two Sharp Reds with Mark Schwarzer and Ollie Geel. Yeah, it certainly is. It's time to get things underway here on the Two Sharp Reds with myself, Ollie Gill, and Australia's third favourite son in Mark Schwarzer, where we, of course, try a new bottle of Burgundy Grape. Uh, we love our red wine here on the Two Sharp Reds. And then towards the end of the episode, we will then compare that wine to a player, past or present. Mark, let's get straight into it. Let's not muck around. Uh, I've gone for a Tasmanian Pinot uh, for today's episode. Nice roaring beach. Uh, it's, uh, it was set up over 40 years ago, which was just sort of before... Tassie wines and Tassie was still probably considered a bit of a hidden gem of Australia. So it's a, it's a little secret spot uh, and I'm looking forward to getting stuck into it. Mate, I have to say for once, for the very first time, I am as jealous as hell that you've got a Tassie Pinot Noir. Because I love, I love, I love Tassie Pinot Noir. Um, one of my favourite all-time uh, Pinot Noir comes from Tasmania. So absolutely love it. Um, so I'm going to go this time a little bit different again. Um, so obviously I've done a lot of Spanish wines, done a couple of Portuguese in between. Um, and now I'm going to go with a South African. I like it a so, lot. So it's an Arabella Merlot, 2018. And uh, I've had this before, shock horror as well. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it because Merlot, I don't think you can generally go wrong with a Merlot. Let's be honest. Nah, look, I don't think we can go wrong with a red wine in general. We absolutely love it here on the Two Sharp Reds. And we'll get stuck into our thoughts on the wine very shortly. But, Mark, we're going to go two for two. Two episodes in a row with two very special guests. So, Mark, I'll let it, you do your favourite thing in the world and do your introduction. Just try and get his name right because we all know what <laughs> happened last week when you didn't yeah. quite nail it. Yeah, yeah, but it was, that, you know, that's acceptable. Last week, you know, Stephen Warnock, Neil Warnock, and he actually... He conceded as well that he so often gets called Neil Warnock. I mean, he's slightly yeah, more yeah. of a <laughs> Make yourself famous feel better. one. Make I, yourself but, I didn't feel actually, better. but I didn't say Neil, did I? You said the oh, N. You said N and not, then went, oh, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, I went close, but I didn't, right? So, yeah, you're right. I did mess up, but at the end, I got it right. So that's the main thing. This one I'm definitely not going to get wrong. Cause can't, I can't get this one wrong. I'm going to say it straight away, Brian Dean's on the show today, so I don't get his name wrong. <laughs> um, and then for any of you who don't know, um, a lot, a lot of uh, history about, with Brian Dean. With the Premier League, first time at, ver- at a number of things, and it's always to do with scoring goals, where it's the first player to score in the Premier League, as we know the Premier League today. Um, just first player to score in a competitive game at the Walker Stadium at Leicester, which I didn't know until recently, uh, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, and let's be honest, scored a bag full of goals. Became a bit of a journeyman, and I obviously met Brian for the first time in 1998 when he came to Middlesbrough. So we've got a lot to chat through, um, and uh, and, he's, and throw another one in the mix. He's from Leeds. He's a Leeds United fan, but he's played for Sheffield United three times and only twice for Leeds. <laughs> <laughs> listen, I'm not... Listen... <laughs> 
no, let's get this misconception <laughs> right. I, I'm a fan of all the clubs. I never grew up being a fan of Leeds or Sheffield or whatever. You know, I was just like, I was always playing. Um, it's my local hometown club. I love Leeds United. I love Sheffield United. I love Leicester City. I also <laughs> love Middlesbrough. I also love Benfica. Yeah, the hole's getting bigger, mate. Rovers. You know, so... <laughs> so uh, yeah. No, no, so, no, sorry. No, sorry. I can't, I don't, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. Sheffield United, Leeds United. Um, it's hard to split the two. You say, I've read something, you say you're a Leeds United fan. And then in, what was it? In uh, 1993, when you signed for Leeds United, they signed you for £2.9 million, right? Yeah. Which equates to today, apparently, around £50 million. That is pretty yeah. insane. And it was a record for Leeds United and a record sale for Sheffield United. I mean, it just goes yeah. to show you how times have changed in terms of sums of money, yeah. um, but also how highly regarded you were back then. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was in the mix in the England squad, and um, I was a young kid then, and um, you know, I was I was playing some of the best football. You know, personally, I was in a good place, and. Um, you know, I had all my faculties in place. You know, I was, you know, I was a pretty mobile, tall, strong centre forward. And, whoa, 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 um, mobile, whoa, 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 mobile. I was, uh, yes, I was very mobile. <laughs> of course, you were. No, you were actually. That's one thing that really surprised me: how mobile you were, and also yeah. how good you were with your feet. People underestimate that. Um, you know, people look at you and go, "Right, yeah, you're six foot five, score headers, everything else," but. You were very, very good with your feet as well. Yeah, I think like growing up, I used to practice. Um, I used to practice with both feet all the time. So, um, you know, I just got into that groove. I, I just loved playing football at every opportunity. But certainly when I, was, when I was growing up, I always used to practice left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. So I ended up playing on the left. I played on the right. I played down the centre. Um, I was in the athletics team. I, was, I played tennis for the school. Um, used to, you know, I, I just used to love sport. So I think, you know, that side of things made it quite easy for me to kind of adapt myself to whatever I was doing. Um, but yeah, no, I, you know, I was a bit of a, there weren't very many players like myself um, at the time, you know, and I, I know people used to always go, oh God, you know, you know, if we had another Brian Dean or whatever, you know, there was, you know, myself, um, I suppose Les Ferdinand's quite a similar type player, but still different. Um, you know, they just weren't at sick at my height and my, my physique, just different really. But um, yeah, it's, you know, very lucky, very fortunate, you know, from that point of view anyway. So when you, you go on a show like this and someone like Mark, you know, reads out some of those, yeah. you know, accomplishments yeah. and milestones... Do you ever get sick yeah. of hearing about some of those? I mean, first Premier League goal scorer—that that you know—that's a moment that will will be around literally forever. It's pretty amazing. Um, no, I, you know what the thing is is that when you finish playing, I mean, Mark will tell you this when you you know when you're kind of you're getting into your later stages in in your football career, and it all sometimes it can be a little bit of a I won't say it's a drag, but you're like. You know, you can see it's like Russell Crowe in um, Gladiator when you're kind of he's, he's heading back up to the house. You know, you can see the you sure. can see the um, <laughs> you can see the end of the line, and um, and that happens. And then you think, oh well, you know, thank God I've got it all behind me. But then, 
you know, afterwards you, you kind of miss the whole, I'm a footballer or, you know, you have that, all of that goes. And, and I remember being at that point and then, you know, where people didn't ask for my autograph anymore. And then um, it makes you really appreciate what you are and, and what you've done because then I never take it for granted if anybody asks me anything or wants to know something, you know. It's part of my past, so, you know, it's good yeah. to share. I mean, it's pretty phenomenal, though, isn't it? I mean, that, that record of being the first player to score in the Premier League, and it was against Man United, and not only did you score the first one, you scored the second one as well, and you beat them. So that must have been a very special moment for... Maybe, maybe not at the time. Like, at the time you would register it, you know it after the game. Yeah. But you don't know the magnitude yeah. of it. You don't know the significance of that accomplishment. Um, yeah. But for Sheffield United to beat Manchester United, that, that is huge in itself. Did that kind of overtake the accomplishment itself? I don't know. It, it's, it was a really strange time. I think now, you, in football, you have analysis, you have all the staff, you have everything going on. I think at that particular time, we had a, you know, psychology played a lot in our game. And the season before, we'd actually, um, I think we had four points at Christmas. And, um, you know, we relied a lot on team, on the ethic of being a team, um, being there for each other. Uh, and then we actually started to, um, we actually started to do things like strength and conditioning and so on, uh, nutrition, everything. And we were the first team in the league to do that and not a lot of people will know that or appreciate that it was us and I can I can go deeper into it if you want but um so that season at the end of that season we were finishing um games really strongly and we were beating sides you know we're beating sides in the top five or whatever so the start of the next season we we kind of looked and thought well if we if we're playing one of the top teams Now's the best time to, to, to play them. At the beginning of the season, there's, no, um, there's nothing they can look at in your team. It's a fresh team and there's an opportunity to catch them out. And I think that's how we approach the game. And that's why um, there was such an emphasis. I mean, the goal I scored was a set piece and we'd worked a lot on set pieces. Um, but we had this kind of doggedness and I could see that there was times in that first season before it became the Premier League where... Teams just didn't want to play against us. You know, we played teams from London and they were lost like, well, we, we haven't got a lot of fans here. You know what? Let's just, whatever happens, you know, we'll, we'll just get back on and we'll be back down to White Hart Lane or wherever it is. So we knew that there were opportunities there. And I think the way the team was going, we, we kind of, um, we, we just took it into our stride. We could beat anybody and we did, you know. It interests me when, when a player like yourself has spent such a long time at a club like Sheffield United and then returned. Uh, I'd love to get your insight on your thoughts on what propels you to, to leave and then come back. And do you notice a, notice a big difference? You not only, obviously, I mean, it goes without saying, the starting eleven is going to be different to the last time you were there, but the club itself. Did you, did you notice much of a shift on your return to Sheffield? So, so when I left, I, um, there was, you know, the club had financial difficulties. Um, <laughs> pretty similar to what's going on now, actually. But um, so, so I left, I went to Leeds, which is a massive rival of Sheffield United. And, and there were obviously a lot of fans there who felt as though they couldn't forgive me. And um, there was a lot made of it. I, I remember going back to Bramall Lane 
when we played them when I was, it was my first season at Leeds and because uh, there were guys in the you know there was people in the stand who once were my you know they'd be egging me on to score and so on they they you know the abuse I was getting was probably well deserved I suppose um, <laughs> but but um, and I actually scored that day as well so uh, yeah how good a feeling was that. You know what? Everybody talks about kissing the badge and all of that now. Look, when you're a professional, you want to score. It doesn't matter who you're playing against, you know? So uh, that's um, that's where I was. And I didn't care who I scored against. I'm celebrating because in them <laughs> days, you... But as a centre forward, you know, and, and in those days, you know, you talked about... Um, there was a lot of competition between the likes of myself, Alan Shearer, Andy Cole, Les Ferdinand, Teddy Sheringham. You know, all of these guys were the ones who were scoring the goals. You know, you sent forward. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I was going to celebrate. And I've always celebrated against teams I've, I've, um, I've played for, against. And, you know, I've always, the crowd have always appreciated it. You know, there's none of this, you know, sorry. <laughs> so, so uh, so when I went back, when I was going back to Sheffield United, um, what had happened was my contract had run out at Leeds, and I was um, I was going to be going abroad. I was going to go to uh, I was going to go to Holland on a free transfer, and then um, I found out about the project at Sheffield United, and they had this ambition to get back in the uh, Premier League, and um, I've got I had a friend there who was just retired, and I said, Mick. You know how the how do you think the fans will take me if I go back? And he was like, Brian, listen, that, that you're the only person who they keep saying they want to play for the club. So that reassured me straight away. And um, you know, when I went back, it was it was actually one of the one of the um, happiest times of of my uh, career. Really, we had a very good side, and I, I, it was that season, Mark, that you went to Middlesbrough because we played you. Yeah, that's and, right. Um, you know, we we came up to um, the new stadium, and uh, you know, I think we beat you two nil. Yeah, thanks, thanks, and you scored as well. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I scored thanks. as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny because just after that, I uh, I ended up going to Benfica. Yep. And Graham, that was Graham Sinners. Graham Sinners took you to Benfica, didn't he? That's right. Yeah, and and it was a it was a really the whole thing was quite strange, but. One of the funniest things about it was that um, when I was actually in the president's office, I got a phone call from a guy called Frank Jones. And um, Frank Jones knows Viv Anderson from Sheffield okay. um, Wednesday. And um, was it Frank or it was either Frank or Viv, or it might have been Frank's phone, but it was Viv. And Viv goes, Deansy, get on a flight. And come back we've got a contract waiting for you here at Middlesbrough because nobody knew that I was available for transfer yeah, and uh, yeah. and actually um you know the, the the whole kind of it was all kind of if you ever get a chance look at it because Jan Agafiotov they, they sold me and Jan on the same day yeah and uh, the fans still go ballistic about it and um you know some of the things going. So so anyway when when it came out that I was obviously available for transfer I think I think um, Middlesbrough would have been interested in me. Um, but I was in the office and I was just about to sign. So, you know, 
I, I, there was part of me that thought, wow, you know, I didn't know anybody else was interested in buying me now. But I was, I was, I was in Lisbon and, um, you know, it's one of the biggest clubs in Europe. And, um, you know, I, I kind of, there was a lot of, a lot of kind of trepidation and sort of like, I was nervous because, you know, all of a sudden I'm going to one of the biggest clubs in Europe. How am I going to do? I've, you know, I'd always had this ambition of going and playing abroad, but, you know, the size of Benfica, I mean, you know, we, we, we'd regularly get crowds of 70,000, you know, and I, I'm, a, I'm in a foreign land and all of those things. So there was, you know, the safest thing for me to do would have been to, to leave. But I felt that because I'd gone over there, you know, Graham Souness had said that he wanted me, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm quite a loyal person. And, you know, even though you go down, you know, you, you might sort of like have something else that's come late. I thoroughly believe in, you know, just just set, staying on the path you're supposed to, really. I'm not a, yeah. Pretty amazing. Um, you mentioned before, Teddy Sheringham, Alan Shearer, uh, Andy Cole. You guys were always in direct competition with each other back then in the early days of the, uh, of the Premier League. And you've got something yeah. massively over them. Not only did you score the first Premier League goal ever, you also scored a hat-trick before they did in the Premier League. So you actually you were the fifth player to score in the Premier League a hat trick wow. okay. um, at Ipswich. Yeah, uh, you, you scored in the FA Cup the game before the hat trick, and then you scored that's it up right. again against Ipswich. So I mean, that, how does I mean, how does that feel? I mean, you've obviously been reminded. Did you know you were the yeah. fifth player to score in the Premier League history a hat trick? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure of that. I knew I'd scored pretty early, and, and that you know because. Actually, when I scored, I scored. We beat Burnley in the FA Cup. I think it was four nil, and I scored a hat trick there. And uh, and then we played. Oh, it was either there or we we played. I can't remember which way round it was, but I had two hat tricks in two games. And That's then right. we played. Uh, we were playing Hartlepool, and nobody's ever done three hat tricks in three games. So that that was the whole of the build up. And you know, I had I, had, I stunk the place out in that game. <laughs> Even though that would that should have been on paper the easiest game to get a hat trick in, you know, they came and they played quite dogged. And I think that part of the reason why they played so well was because they knew what was on, you know, what was at stake as well. And yeah, we we ended up winning one nil. You know, was, everything was set up for me. It was at Bramall Lane. You know, it was a huge crowd just off the back of can Brian Dean score a third hat-trick in three games? Now, I mean, nine goals in a week is unheard of. Yeah. You know, at that level. Of course. And, uh, yeah, and, and um, but yeah, no, I stumped the place out. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, we... Uh, and, and that wasn't because you had a curry the night before either. It wasn't because of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Blades are finding themselves in a bit of a sticky situation. Uh, can yeah. they find an escape route of some kind? And if so, is it through Ryan Brewster? Because we know what he's capable of. When we've seen him at Swansea, I thought in particular, he really started to come into his own. But are you confident in that respect? I don't know. Um, I mean, Chris is a friend of mine. We played together at Sheffield United. Um, I think one thing that people don't look at much nowadays is characters. And, you know, characters in football, they're different now to what they used to be. Um, and I, I kind of 
when I look at what's, you know, the, the squad's been ravaged. They've lost some players. They've had some players back. But my, my fear is that they don't have enough characters in the team now. You know, traditionally, you have to have, you know, you know going, into, going into coaching and managing myself, a big emphasis for me was on having, a, you know, strong characters, one up front, one in midfield, and one at the back. You know, and that gave you a backbone. And, I, and I, looking at the game yesterday, and I, I, you know, there's been time. There were times during my career where, you know, the ball's going in the box, and I'm just making sure I can't get there because my confidence is gone. And I'm looking at some of the crosses that were going into the box yesterday, and I'm looking and I'm thinking, you know, if that was me in that trying to get that third hat trick, I'd have been doing everything. You know, I'd have been throwing myself. And I, I just sort of like looked at a couple of instances yesterday and I thought, you know, people aren't kind of, you know, dying for the cause. And I think a lot of that's pretending because they've lost their confidence. Is it also, so, right, right, does it also have a part to play? I mean, I, I think it personally does, but the, the fact that there's no fans in the ground. So it can work two ways. It can work that it, it, there's a case of a lack of accountability. You can easily take your foot off the yep. pedal a little bit because you haven't got people shouting down, yep. giving you abuse if things are not going yep. so well. That kickstarts you. And for Sheffield, that was a big, big plus for them. That, that 12th man, yep. as they say. So, so, so again, and, it, and it's only my, my opinion here, but I'll give, you two, um, I'll give you two examples. So, as you just said, Sheffield United... The crowd over there is phenomenal. You know, they get behind the team. And Sheffield United has always been the underdog. Yeah. And the players respond to that because they know that the crowd will always be with them. And it's like you say, Matt, it's a 12th man. Yeah. Um, and, and they are missing that. They're missing that more than any other side in the division. If you take, put the shoe on the other foot and you look at Leeds United now... I think that, and it's only my opinion, but I think that if that crowd at Leeds had been there at the end of last season, I think that Leeds might have struggled because I don't know if the characters there, and they're, you know, they're there to shoot me down, but I know how that crowd is. And if you can't deliver in front of that crowd, you know about it. And it takes, you know, when I went to Leeds, um, you know, my first year, I, I, I had a bad season by my terms. I only scored 10 goals. Um, and, it, and it was a rough season, you know. And I had to decide then where, where my career was going to go. You know, was I going to kind of let it limp along or was I going to go back to, you know, basics? Was I going to, you know, I start, and, I, and I decided I was going to start doing all the things that I was doing that got me the move, that got me all the... Um, the notoriety and the adulation and, and I did that and it was you know that's when you build resilience that's what happens and I knew what I wanted and I knew what I didn't want to go back to so you make a conscious decision as in well that's what I have to do if that's what I have to do on the pitch if that's what I have to do in training that's what I'm gonna do now what I'm saying about the crowd is the the crowd understand. They get a feeling for your body language. And, and actually, you can see fear on players, you know. And, and 
you know, it, I remember there was there were times where you're playing and um, you, you're lacking in confidence and you only want to see everything at head level. You don't want to look in the stands. And this might be a little bit deep for people. I mean, you'll know what I mean, Mark, you know? Yeah. But you kind of, you want to focus, you're trying to say, I don't, I don't want to focus on anybody looking at me. And, 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 and that's what I'm saying. You, you look at, um, when you're looking in the side, when you've got complete control over the crowd, and I had that at Sheffield, you know, look at Cantor, he scored that goal against um, Sunderland, where he chipped the goalie, and then he's yeah. just, you know, he, you know that's, that's when you know that you've got everybody in your hand, and that's when you know that you, you control things, you know, and there's a difference, you know, and you have to have those characters who can step up when you go to a big club. Um, and that's and that's the difference. So Leeds United at the moment, their players have come through. Um, they're playing for a fantastic manager, and and they're all playing at their absolute maximum. But I just wonder if sort of like if some of the players how they'd respond in front of a crowd of forty forty five people forty five thousand people at Leeds. It's and you know how intimidating that place is when the crowd's on your back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, it's pretty horrendous. The thing is, I mean, I, I, I totally understand and I agree with you what you're saying about uh, the back end of last season. I mean, there's a few things. I think the, the break in the game due to COVID played massive dividends in their favour. Yes, the crowd not being there was another part, but I think it was the break uh, that they got. They were able to come back fitter and stronger. They were recharged leads, so that helped them. I just yeah. think on the weekend against Arsenal, Pepe gets sent off in the 50-odd minute. If Leeds United is rocking with 40,000 people in that stadium, they actually win that game. They win that game comfortably. So that's where it works against them, like Sheffield yeah. United. That's right. No, you're absolutely right. I think that... And, and look, I have to say, when they get behind you, <laughs> they're like a 14th man down there, yeah. you know. So, um, and, and I've seen people melt just going on the pitch and can't play in front of that, that kind of crowd, you know. So, so you're absolutely right. That crowd gets behind them down at Leeds United. Then, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. They, you, know, they, you, you know, that will carry you along. Who's the most intimidating crowd you've played in front of? Leeds, Leeds United, Sheffield United, Benfica, West Ham? West Ham's not an easy place either. That's a difficult so, place to play. So, so, so OK, let, let's break this down first. So are you talking about... When I'm playing for that team, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. When you're playing for that team, who was the, who was the most who was the most demanding and most difficult ones to play play in front of? I, I mean, when I say difficult, I mean it in terms of their expectations and just the, the level of demand that they have on their players. I would say um, at the time of my career, definitely Leeds. I think really? when I was at when I was at Sheffield United, I, I was. It, came, it was good for me because I came from Doncaster and um, nobody was expecting anything from me. Scored on my debut and then all of a sudden I'm scoring goals, I'm scoring goals. I get 30 goals that season. And, you know, all of a sudden I've grown into my position as a 21-year-old as a kid. And so, you know, I'm, I'm able to kind of use the energy from the crowd to go on and, and carry on scoring and so on and so on. With, um, with Leeds... You know, that was, um, wow, that first season was tough, <laughs> you know, because I was, I was playing a different type of football, 
you know, they wanted somebody who was a bit more like Lee Chapman and I wanted to run, you know, and I wanted to get on the shoulder of people. But the, the midfield players who we played with, we didn't have out-and-out out wingers, you know. We, we had Strachan, McAllister, Speed and Batty. who were very good players, but they're very good at keeping the ball. You know, um, the, you know we didn't have sort of like, you know, we didn't have an out-and-out out winger. We didn't have, we didn't have Mares or somebody else. It was... It was really high tempo football, and then in the you know getting up to the centre forward, and then you know instead of me being the finishing article, I found myself being part of the um, you know I was like a pawn. You know yeah. what I mean? I wasn't one of the major players, and and that didn't you know I found that really difficult to deal with um, at that point in my career, and that's why what I'm saying is what I had to do after that first year was I had to decide what I wanted from my career. And I went back and I said, right, this is how it's going to be. You know, and you, you, you know, you've got to give the best of yourself. And if the best of myself wasn't good enough, then I could have walked away and said, well, I wasn't up to it. And, and that's, you know, I think that, you know, as a professional, that's what you have to do sometimes. You have to, to lay, lay down like that and think, right, okay, what do I need to do? You can't rely on anybody else but yourself. You know, when you shut that door, and you go home, you've got to deal with everything that you feel that you've left outside. So, but in terms of what, later on in my career, um, it was difficult at times at Middlesbrough because I didn't feel, again, like I had the kind of, um, I didn't have the service at times that I feel that would have helped my game. Yeah. Um, Benfica, now that's a different animal altogether, <laughs> you know. So you get English players, not a lot of English players have ever gone abroad, yeah. And that was why when, um, when I was in the office in Lisbon, that's why the kind when the Ford rang, that was a very tempting offer. <laughs> <laughs> even though the weather, even though the weather and the city, Lisbon's a great city as well. So oh. you kind of go, Mm, you know, do I want to go back to yeah. Leeds, travel yeah. to Middlesbrough, or do I want to stay in Lisbon? I know where I would have gone and stayed. <laughs> yeah, but you know, remember, you're a centre forward and you're coming with a big reputation. Yeah. And it's like, so you know you have to produce out here. Yeah. You know, I looked around the changing rooms and um, there were all these players there from different nationalities. You know, we had... Uh, we had Carlos Gamara. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was playing for Par played for Paraguay in the World Cup um, as their captain. We had Michel Prudhomme. Yeah, of goals. course. Yeah. And, and as a goalkeeper, remember of Chinikov, Russian yep. goalkeeper. Yes. Yeah. So those were our goalkeepers. We had um, Joao Pinto, Portuguese. Of course. Legend. Legend, yeah. Um, you know, we had um, Karol Poborski. Um, Scott Minto. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Remember Mintz, that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mintz, yeah, Mintz. I went over there. I didn't know Scott before I went over there, and um, and 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 who else? Yeah. So anyway, like obviously, I'd gone there with the attitude of, oh, I've got to produce now, you know. Um, now, fortunately for me. You know, because it just take a little bit of adapting the way how the, the, the style of football, um, you know, because what happens over there is that all the teams come to the Stadium of Light, they play very deep, and then they say, okay, break us down. 
and um, you know, so you're allowed the ball, and then everything's compressed into the uh, opposition half. So you've got maybe I don't know 18 players in that half, and it's just they're just look you just a little bit like how you see the Manchester Cities of today, and so on. Now, um, fortunately for me, um, there was a there was a there was a guy who I played up front with called Nuno Gomez. <laughs> not bad, not a bad player. Not a bad, not a bad player. Yeah, he was but, all right. Uh, yeah, um, but he kind of. The, the beauty about playing with him was that he was electric in the box. And having that mentality where I'm going, I'm looking at games, I'm thinking, right, Brian, you want to be a one, you're a one in three striker. You know, you need to be scoring. If you don't score now, you've got to score in three games time. And that's the kind of pressure I used to put on myself. But Nuno was on fire. And um, the good thing about it was that we, we just clicked because... I helped him with the kind of the physical side of it and the movement. And he was just, you know, he only needed a few yards in the box and the ball's in the back of the net, you know. So I didn't have the pressure of having to score all the time because Nuno was doing that, yeah. you know. And um, what it meant was that there were times where, when all the pressure was on him, once I got my first goal over there, that was a different story altogether, you know. So it, it was great. And, it, it, you know, it took a little bit of time for the players to actually trust me and respect me because they didn't know anything about me, you know. There, there was another guy. I don't, have you, I don't know if you heard of Erwin uh, Sanchez. He, yeah. he became the, yeah. So Erwin was the, um, they used to call him Platini because <laughs> he was, um, you know, he had this shot on him. But he became the Bolivian, ma the manager of Bolivia. As well, you had Taha El Khaled who play, came to play at Southampton, Moroccan yeah. international. So it was honestly, it was like it was like Hollywood, and then I turn up. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Brian Dean from Chapel Town in Leeds. You know, <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a nice area as well. Chapel Town's a nice place. Well, it, well, it's yeah. I mean, it was it's a great <laughs> place. To, well, it's great if you look like me <laughs> <laughs> what what do you think the benefits will be um for, for some of these younger english players that are heading overseas if i if i take football out of the equation for a second and you know if i think about what i've been able to get out of living in england and making that move and you know going out of your comfort zone and doing it there's a lot that you yeah. can learn so was there anything in particular in your your time at benfica that you thought not necessarily to do with your, your performance on the pitch, but you actually went, geez, I've actually learned a fair bit here. And that hopefully your Jude Bellingham's, your Jaden Sancho's will come back eventually and they'll be, you know, well, really well-rounded people, not just footballers. Yeah, so there's two things to that. I mean, I, you know, I, I've always said that England can't win a World Cup until they've got players going and playing in different parts of the world. Now, that's not going to happen because all the big contracts are here in this country. Yep. So um, you're hardly going to find the best players who play for England going and playing elsewhere. Plus, there's a kind of stigma and, you know, there's a lot of... With, with the more established players, I think if you go to Spain, they, they, don't, they, they kind of look at it and say, well, the players in England aren't as technically good as what we've got and so on. You know, you don't see many... You don't see Paris Saint-Germain going and... and finding another English player to go and play up front with Neymar, Dio and, and, and Mbappe. So there is that side of it. And, and, but I, I do feel that if we had more players going, 
out of this country and bringing that experience back of understanding what different cultures actually, how they overcome adversity, how they deal with certain things. I think that that's the final little bit of balance that you need yeah. along with the technical ability, you know, the character and so on. What, uh, and, and the second part of that is that when I went to manage abroad in Norway, you know, I played, uh, I'd, I'd, um, I'd gone to play in Portugal. I'd been over to Australia for a short time and then I went and I managed in Norway. Why are you laughing, Mark? Uh, no, no, I, I was <laughs> going to talk about that later on, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about that. Anyway, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but no, going to Norway and managing out there is where I really kind of, you know, there are a lot of myths um, in football. There are a lot of misconceptions about people. And there's a, I call it the Emperor's New Clothes. So, so when, I, when I went to Norway and I was all of a sudden involved in senior management, I kind of realised then that, there's a lot of people blagging it, you know? There's a lot of people blagging it in football. Um, what, it took you that long? It took you that long to work it out? No, 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 <laughs> no, it didn't, it didn't. But the point was, Mark, was that I was in their shoes. Yeah. And whereas I could always approach it now and think, right, okay, that's what I'm doing, I'm studious. I'm understanding this, I'm understanding that. I was like, you know what? There's managers out there, right, who are in jobs who are just waiting to get sacked. There are board members or there are people who, work, who don't actually know their jobs, yep. but they're winging it. Of course. And it happens. You know, and, 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 you know, even if you look at CEOs, chief execs, and all of these kind of people, you know, like I said, I call it the emperor's new clothes because a few buzzwords and so on. And look, I'm not saying everybody's like that. Don't get me wrong. But you get such an education playing in football and being in different cultures, being in different situations, that you actually, you know, any transition from football into business and so on is actually easier if you don't allow yourself to get pigeonholed. And, it, and it, you know, we as, we as footballers get pigeonholed into you know, people will say, oh, well, he played football. Well, all right, yeah, well, we all know about footballers. It isn't like that. You know, we are masters of um, crisis management. And um, I'll give you an example. So, you know, when I talk about crisis management, there's two things. There's the fact that, you know, you have to get results every three days, every five days. So if you're a manager that's your window of I have to get results. Whereas, you know, if you're in business, you might need six months. You might have to, you know, things might, you get that period of time where things are settling in and you can, you don't get that in football. And, it, and, it, and it's the same when you're on the pitch where, you know, you might have made a mistake and you've got to, and you're going in that direction, but that mistake puts you there to the side. You've got to find a way very quickly to get back that direction, you know? And that's, that is kind of, that's, that, that kind of thinking and that kind of, that, that, those equations, you know, if you could apply that to business, you know, and, and alongside the fact that, like I said, when I went abroad and I was managing, you understand a lot more about business. 
you know, and, yeah. and, and micromanaging, managing down, managing sideways, managing up. These are all skills that you, that you kind of, you just realize that they're very much latent and you have them. So that experience of managing in Norway, do you still have that bug to want to go and manage? Or no, is that... I'm, no, I'm done, man. I'm done. You know, <laughs> I, um, you know it's, it's a funny one because for me, I, I know that, you know, there's a big thing at the moment about black managers and, you know, not getting opportunities. I'm telling you now, there are opportunities out there, right? I, I was, you know, I did everything on the quiet. I didn't want to be one of these that shouted and bawled that, look, I want this opportunity. I didn't do that. I, I went and I, I decided, right, I'm going to do my badges. I'm going to do it quietly. You know, I went and, and I, did my, I did my badges with the Scottish FA, which, by the way, is one of the best... You know, they've had people like Mourinho, Villas-Boas, all of it. And if you look at the amount of Scottish managers that come down as well, they've got some fantastic coaches, brilliant tutors up there. And I'm not saying anything against the English FA. The only yep. thing I would say is that when I, when I told them that uh, I wanted to get on my A licence, I rung them up and they were like, oh, well, we'll have to have a look. Oh, there's a space here, but it's reserved for somebody. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, did I not play for England? Yeah. Mm. So I said, okay, well, no, actually, I'd already, I'd already had a place in Scotland. I said, okay, no problem. I'm going to go do them in Scotland. Oh, no, you can't do that. You've got to get cross-border. You've got to get cross-border permission. I was like, what the f you know, this is my livelihood here. Yeah. You know, and, and there's, that, there's that kind of micromanagement type of control thing going on. I thought, do one, you know? So I went, did my badges there, and then even after I'd done them, you know, it, I was still keeping things quiet. I, I spoke to an agent in Norway, said, listen, I'd really like to see if I could get this football management thing, um, you know, become a success at it. I didn't go in the papers and say to anybody, oh, you know, I think that I should get an opportunity. Look at what I've done later. Look at where I've been. No, I went to Norway and I was just like, you know what? Let's see if I can get out of my comfort zone and do all the things. And you know what? I took a team over who had just come up and the, and the remit was, you know, look, we want to be more professional. We want to, um, you know, we've got a smallest budget in the league and we want to play this type of football, right? That was my remit. So... I didn't get the opportunity to go in there with the, you know, with a medium-sized budget, with all of this and that. I, I, I worked within a structure. You know, I had to be creative with the kind of players, you know, and I was bringing my knowledge. But I wasn't only bringing my knowledge, I was bringing all of the managers that I played for in that room with me and yeah. those experiences and how they'd managed certain situations, you know. So that's what I brought to the table. And the disappointing thing is when I came back to England and I'd had two years out there, the first year we survived, the second year we finished eighth, got to the cup semi-final. I came back to England and people knew I was there and I was trying to bang on the door of people to say, you know, can I just, can you just talk to me? No. Chief ex I rung one chief executive and said, look, I see the jobs come up can I have the opportunity to at least come and speak to you? It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Guess what? No phone call. No phone call, right? And not interested in what Brian Dean's got to say. 
Um, I got one interview. I got two hours to prepare for it. I didn't even get a chance to get a shave and go or prepare anything. I was a token effort. And, I, and, and to this day, right, I, that really annoys me that I think that they got me in to box tick. Yeah. And I'll never put myself in that position again. I'd rather die on my feet as a man than live on my knees as a slave. Simple as that. You know, and for all the people out there thinking, you know, it's all, it's, it's BS or whatever. It ain't like that, honestly. I, have, I had, I say had, a lot to offer. Yeah, I had a lot to offer. You know, even if you think about the amount of black players coming through now, um, you know, they want somebody to look up to. You can't just, you know, it's like, Mark, it'd be like you going and playing football in the Caribbean and the coach is black. Yeah. And, you know, you have a certain way of doing things and it's like, no, you've got to do it like this. Forget about what you've done. There's that transition. And, and people don't think about this because the majority rule. Nobody yeah. thinks about what you can get extra out of looking into culture and so on. And, and that's, that's for me. Now, when I see all these arguments and, you know, pe people have got no idea because they've lived this, you know, they, they call it white privilege. I'd just say privilege. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you've never had to deal with some of the things that I've had. You've never had to, you know, some, you know, I've been, I've been for interviews when I was, when I was a kid at 17 who, um, and when the guy found out I was black, you know, it was a case of, oh, right you know and 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 again you know this this might be hard hitting but i'm telling you how it is because i've managed to get through the system and i'm looking at it now you know and and the reason why i know that was the case was because the guy who gave me the uh, details to go for that job in advertising when i spoke to him afterwards said what did he do when he saw you i'm bearing in mind i'm a 17 year old kid all right he says, what, what did he do when he saw you? I says, well, he just said there wasn't a job. And he laughed and he said, oh, I don't like black people. And I thought, wow, thanks. Mm. Mm. Do you know, so, you know, look, people are asking for change. And, you know, I, I see a lot of, you know, I hear what's going on. And there's a lot of lazy managers out there. You know, there are managers out there who, uh, you know, they've got on the carousel and, um, you know, they're happy being mediocre. You know, what you need is you need new ideas, you need new energy, you need people who are going to take it, you know, not take it up a, a notch a little bit and create that kind of competition. But we're not getting it because I'll come back to it. The emperor's new clothes. Mm. So, so do you think to spark that it, it might take you know, admittedly I don't know a lot about the individuals in the, the English FA but if they were to take a leaf out of what we were talking about before in terms of a playing standpoint so if they were to go to other leagues and experience different cultures and the way do, they do it do you think that that's possibly the direction or is it too far gone or <laughs> well, what, are we, what are we thinking <laughs> mate listen let me tell you right when you're at a top table and you talk, let, let's just talk, it could be politics, it's football, because football is politics, really. Yeah. Once you're on that top table, right, it's about how you can build a moat around yourself. You know, nobody's, yeah. it, nobody is there saying, right, you know what, 
my legacy is going to be this. And it might be a short legacy, but I'm going to be the guy who implemented X. Yeah? People just want to see how fat they can get for as long as they can get. Mm. And, 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 I, and I'm like, you know what? I see, you see it every day. I'm sorry that it's taken me to get to 52 to, um, you know, to actually turn around and say, well, you know what? I'll speak about this because I think when I was younger, I think, well, no, you can't upset people. But I'm getting old and people need to know that we have to have competition. We have to have diversity. You know, we have to have equality wherever you are and whatever you're doing. You know, that's the only way how you, how you progress. You know, that's evolution. I'd love to ask you, this is kind of like when you get the opportunity to talk to one of your dad's mates from high school. What was, what was Mark like? What, what were your memories of, of mucking around with Mark at Middlesbrough? Because it really is. I'd love to know what he looked like, what he smelt like, what he acted like. Was he a good what teammate? What he smelt like? Oh, I like to, <laughs> mate, I like to know it all. I like to know yeah. him inside and out. Ollie's a bit of a weirdo. I see why he's got that moustache anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes together. Exactly. Um, you, know, no, you know what? Mark hasn't really changed that much. I mean, it's funny because when I... We, we hadn't seen it, and obviously I'd seen Mark when he went to uh, Leicester and Chelsea and all the rest of it. But when, when I saw him, there was a genuine kind of excitement because I think we were just... You know, Matt's just to come in, do his job, have a bit of a laugh, eat all the food in the um, <laughs> canteen. <laughs> no, you weren't uh, bad at you weren't bad at eating all the food as well, I, by the way. Yeah, I weren't bad, but I weren't as good as you or Matt. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> um, but no, he was honestly. We had, we had a. I think the problem to it not. It wasn't a problem. But when we, were at, when we were at Middlesbrough, we all got on. And I mean, the, you know, even the manager, we all loved Brian Robertson, you know. And, um, you know, we all wanted to do so well for him, but sometimes it was difficult to motivate ourselves because if we played crap, we knew we weren't going to get a bollocking. No. Do you know what I mean? Right. And um, he was, you, you know, it's got, he's got such a standing in the game. But he's such a nice person as well. You remember, yeah. you remember the moment, 2000, 2001. Uh, it was your last time there at the club, your last season. Um, and actually, Brian Robson's last season at the club. The, around December time is when the big change actually happened. And it was a big reason why we sat up in the end when Terry Venables came to the club. And, and I, I don't know if you remember, but like a lot of it was to do with Brian, I remember, I remember having the team meeting, Brian Robson, and saying, you know, what is wrong? You know, what do we need to do? And players standing up and going, we need to work on the basics. We need to get back to defending, going through sessions on the training field. And I remember his response was, I want you guys to enjoy training. And I want you to go through the boring things of going through monotonous training sessions of defending. Off. That's why I've got Gary Pallister who's 33 years old. That's why I've got Steve Vickers at 31. I don't need, you know, you don't need that. I don't want to bore you guys. I want you guys to enjoy training because also they wanted to partake. They wanted to play. And that was the hard thing. Like you're saying, we were, we were all such a close knit group and a really good, had really good relationships. It actually became detrimental to us in the end. Absolutely. You know, you need, you need characters. I mean, I, 
after Brian left and then Terry came in and, and obviously Incy was there. I mean, there were times I never got on with Incy, yep. you know, but it was, it, you needed him in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then Steve McLaren came and that's another story altogether. <laughs> yeah. And we, I haven't we, got that time. No, we need another podcast for that one. Yeah, you do. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, Mark was, like I say, Mark was a great guy and I always used to, I always used to look out for him. There was, there's, there's always some people who you look look for. You know, there was Robbie Musto, Stevie Vickers. We all kind of had the same. We, we, we all enjoyed certain things. I know that at the time, Mark, you remember I was, you were into property. Yeah. And, and I had, um, and I was looking to move from where I was and, yeah. and so on. And I wish I'd have, I wish I'd have moved to Harrogate now. I'd have been a multi-zillionaire now, you know. But, uh, still waiting to make that move. But, uh, <laughs> but no, seriously. Um, but no, there was, there was, it was a great, it was a really good, um, good changing room, good bunch of people. Um, and, and to be the, the players all wanted success with that club. You know, we yeah. wanted it to be our own little secret up there. That was the thing about Middlesbrough. You kind of, for me anyway, I wanted to do so well there. But mm. I, I needed somebody at that point of my career to A, believe in me, but fight with me and, and, and get those little bits out that I still had left. You know what I mean? That, that's, that was the thing up there at the time. I want to mention one or more of your clubs. Sunderland, yeah. 2005. I mean, you only you had a brief stint there. You only came on as four substitute appearances. But what I want to ask you about is that you were there at the same time as a colleague of ours who worked for Optus Sport, a guy called Michael Bridges, who spent a lot of time oh, Bridget, on the bench yeah. as well. Yeah. So um, we, we love giving stick to Bridgie, right? We love hammering him all the time. So is there anything you can tell us about Bridgie that, that will possibly make, you know, embarrassing... Um, I mean, we all know that, listen, he would trip over, he'd trip over a, a, like a, a toothpick and break his leg or something like that. He'd be out for 12, 12 years. But other than that, is there anything you can give us? Um, I'm sorry. I mean, I, again, you know, I, I mean, Bridget was great with me. We had a, you know, I only came in and I was kind of on the periphery there. And um, it was Mick McCarthy who brought me in. And uh, I think he just, like he said, he was, the thing with Mick was he was very, very, um, very honest with me, which was a breath of fresh air after working with Kevin Blackwell. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, he just said, look, Brian, I've got a deal till the end of the season. Um, not going to give back next year, but, you know, I'd like your experience to help us get promoted. And, and I came in and I knew what I was there for and that's all you can ask for. Um, but no, Bridgie was fine. Um, can't really remember too much. Yeah, that's pretty much standard. Bridges. Yeah, like you meet him, then you don't really like quite, kind of, kind of like pinpoint what it is. Um, kind of forgetful, really, isn't it? He's not really long lasting. Thank you for that. That's absolutely brilliant, right? I'm glad that you agree with us, and that'll be definitely used against Bridges. <laughs> So just before we, we wrap things up and really appreciate your, your time here on the Two Sharp Reds, we know you spent a little bit of time in Australia with, with Perth. Um, how did you enjoy it and, and what's the future of Australian football hold, do you think? Do, do you think it's got a bright future or do you think it's stagnated to a point where we don't know what might come next? Did you say five minutes? I can sum it up in one minute. If you want. <laughs> go on, go on, give, <laughs> us, do. give it to us. Brutal. No, no, no. 
No, no, no. Look, I mean, I went over there. It was the inaugural year of the um, A-League. And, um, you know, I, I kind of didn't really know what to expect. Um, you know, I went to Perth and, you know, things, you know, when, you, when you've, I think that was the first time that I realised how privileged I'd been um, to, um, to have played over here. You know, because, you know, things, things for me which were alien were like, I had to wash my own kit. Yeah. You know, I'd gone over there on my own. Um, you know, I didn't, you know, I was, I was like, I, at the time I said to my girlfriend, um, listen, let me just go and see how, it, how I go on. And then if, if it works, you know. And of course, after about a week, I said, oh, <laughs> <laughs> your, don't bother looking for a visa, love. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, look, it, it was difficult and I can understand what they were trying to do at the time. Perhaps I wasn't the right person to be in a, in a situation like that. You know, I was 37 years of age. Um, I wasn't the Brian Dean of 30. You know what I mean? But you wouldn't get the Brian Dean of 30 over there. But like, it was just the kind of the way how the players were brought in from different leagues at different standards and so on. And... Um, I, I'll never forget one of the things that kind of summed, two things summed it up for me and, and really made me realise I had to move on was I remember playing up front and I hadn't scored, you know, and, and like I said, it was, I wasn't very mobile then. I'd not done a pre-season and so I really struggled, you know. But I remember we had a, we had a winger called Hero and um, Japanese kid. Yep. And... Um, I remember when he used to play, this guy was, he had all the tricks. You know what I mean? He was a winger and he was quick. You know, he'd get to the byline, cut it back, Cruyff turn, drag it through his legs again, and then cross it into the stand. And, um, the, and the crowd would clap. And I've like, and I'm in the middle and I've made that run. I've come back out, I've gone back in. And I'm like, what just happened? Do you know? And, and it's like, and then, like, people are like, oh, you know, he's a great player. And look, might have been a great player, but um, I, was, I was thinking, well, I'm 38, coming up next birthday. I can't, I can't do all that anymore, <laughs> you know what I mean? You've got to just give me it where I'm going to be good. And I, I, don't think, um, I don't think the fact that Steve McMahon came over and gave his son one of the... Um, places you know there was a lot of the, the media basically didn't want me there they didn't want him there you know and I was just like what what am I doing here and I think that the, it came to a head when we had a the away game in Auckland or Wellington sorry Wellington Phoenix that's right and um you know we flew to Sydney and then we flew to, to Wellington and I'm like hang on I could have been in Miami now. <laughs> yeah. and I just thought yeah. got into my room two single beds I thought Brian it's time to go home yeah. time did, to you go, go. did you go directly from New Zealand home or did you go back to Perth <laughs> no I went back to Perth via Miami Mark, uh, yeah, uh, we've got a couple so. minutes left so Mark I'll leave you to do you nailed your intro but please you feel free to do your outro 
Come on. Yeah, Bring it on. Uh, listen, it's really been fantastic today to speak to Brian Dean. Um, you've been excellent. It's been great to reminisce, great to talk through your career, wonderful career, um, you know, to hear those stats. And hopefully I've enlightened you a little bit about being the fifth player to score in the Premier League, a hat-trick, <laughs> which is very impressive. Um, and uh, really enjoyed our time together. And I've been really enjoyed the chat today. So yeah. thank you for, very much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Won't be long, I promise. Back to Ollie and Mark in just 15 seconds. If you enjoy Two Sharp Reds, though, make sure you search The Gegen Pod wherever you get your podcasts. David Weiner is joined by thousands of games of experience both on and off the field. It's a great listen. G-E-G-E-N-P-O-D, The Gegen Pod. Okay, back to Two Sharp Reds. Good stuff there from Brian, wasn't it, Mark? It was very interesting stuff. And one thing that I forgot to pull him up on that... um you know, will kick me for a bit, is when he said that he's quite a loyal man. And I've had a look at his CV beforehand, and he, he's played for some clubs. So it's interesting, yeah. thing, but, you know, hands up. What? Well, well, he could argue and say, well, loyalty is also the fact that he played for Sheffield United three times and Leeds United yes. twice. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, Michael Bridges doesn't have that. He has like 55 clubs on his resume, or he's played exactly for every right. one of them, never gone back to the same one twice. So, you know, there, there is a big difference. Mark, before we wrap things up and talk about our wines, um, there's a couple of things I need to get off my chest, and I'm sure that you'll be as frustrated as I am, uh, probably more so, I would assume. Um, we saw Sunday, Sunday football, uh, your boys, Fulham, they've done it again. They've missed another penalty. Cavalero, one of the worst penalty shots I've seen. Um, can anyone kick a penalty at that club, do you think? What's going um, well, on? He, I mean, he slipped over, so, you know. Oh, goes but, but the reason he slipped over as well is because he's gone with hesitation. He's slept back, right. he's slipped over. Uh, Mitrovic, Mitrovic missed a penalty, a vital penalty in, in qualification to the Euros uh, in the playoff. So you can understand why he didn't want to take it. Yeah, there's a clear issue. There's a clear issue in terms of finding someone who can take a penalty. And it's not an easy thing to do. When I was at Fulham, we had Danny Murphy who would take a penalty and he was brilliant. He was yeah. fantastic at taking it. Uh, after him, we had a few people that could take them, like uh, Bobby Zamora would step up, take one. Clint Dempsey did once as well when, when Danny Murphy was off the pitch um, against Chelsea to win the game and we ended up drawing. He missed it. Um, Petacek saved it. And it was literally the last kick of the game. So we could have actually had a famous victory against Chelsea, which we didn't. But you know what? It happens. Um, you know, Yakubu was brilliant for, for Middlesbrough taking penalties. Absolutely brilliant. So it, it, is a, it is an art. And it's, it's not as easy as everyone thinks it is. And clearly with Fulham, you can see the pressure is mounting. Um, nothing's going right for them. But when three of your best players, you know, I mean, we're assuming Lookman probably won't ever take another penalty, you know, in, in Fulham colours. Cavalero is a, a really great player. Mitrovic knows where the goals are. So you think, you know, yeah, the, the, the list strikers, starts to get smaller, though. Yeah, well, I mean, there's not, I mean, there's a few strikers who are very good. I mean, like, listen, you know, when you, when you look at Alan Shearer was a brilliant penalty taker. Uh, um, Rashford, Mark Rashford scored some really important penalties as a number nine. There's not a lot of number nines that generally step up and take penalties. Yep. Um, you know, it's one of those things. It's a difficult one. Mitrovic can understand why he didn't take it. Um, like I said, so yeah, it, it's it's a uh, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Um, and Middlesbrough, uh, sorry, Fulham just need to find one. They need to find someone who's 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 got the confidence to step up and take one. Uh, it's been a, a big. Now I'm trying to think if it was overnight or a big day. Let's say it happened today. It's a big day for Australians. Um, one of our own, 
Mr. HQ has been awarded EFL Manager of the Month. 72 teams he's up against. And that is, that is a serious effort. And one that you hope for his sake can propel him from here. You know, I, I don't think he's got a... I think, I'm assuming that's his first. I don't think he got one at Crawley Town, from the best yeah. of my knowledge. I can't it, remember. But yeah. a, 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 big, a big moment in his managerial career. Listen, it's a, it's a it's a step, but hopefully a uh, a big step at the moment. But hopefully it turns out to be a very minor one. Uh, but yeah. it's maybe a turning point in his career, you know, in terms of management. Let's hope he goes on to bigger and better things. And um, just just seeing the the results, seeing the you know the impact he's had since he's been there, seems to be very very positive. You know, a big big win on the weekend. Um, I think it was against Exeter. Was that right? They That's won. correct. Yes. Um, Exeter were like near the top of the table, um, so yes. it was a huge win for Oldham. And let's hope that momentum can continue. And hopefully, um, you know, he, he he does a really good job of it. It's just fantastic, though, isn't it? That it's not just you know winning the Premier League Manager of the Month. Obviously, that would be more impressive. But the idea that you're you know going up against four other divisions, which is which is a real you know that's a real positive. Oh yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's it's some going, isn't it, to to have done it. So you know, hats off, credit to, to Harry and obviously all the work he and his team are doing and, and trying to you know to to get things right um, at his early stages of his managing career. Mark, let's talk shop. Uh, let's talk wine. It's been a very very nice Tassie Pinot Noir my and a beautiful roaring beach. It's called. I saw it. Didn't well. Wasn't sort of actively looking for it, but. Found this really nice. I don't even know if you could call it a village. You know where you live, right? Sort of around your place. There's all those really nice little little butchers and little you know designated. Yep. I know there's a very nice little wine cellar that I would yes. go to before we would um, you know do do the podcast in person. Found a little area like that near where I'm living, which is I'll be honest, few and far between in this part of the world. <laughs> So, so there's a, a nice fishmonger and a beautiful a butchers and a um, beautiful coffee, but a, a cheese, wine and beer cellar. Unreal. Nice. And, and the, the Tassie where, wines where, that they had on display. Where's my invite? Where's my invite? Like, like seriously, okay. when With, are we going? We've got nine days left of lockdown and then we can reassess and we can well, reassess and get excited. I'm ready when you are. Uh, you are not going to come to Peckham. To Why go not? to a wine so you're not. I bet in, if, no... if it's that good, if it's that good, I'm there. Okay, all right, I'll hold you to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see you in Peckham. Uh, Why not? I've been there. I've been there before. What about what? What to play Millwall? Yeah, I've been around there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. up the road. My local, yeah. my local club. Um, catch, catch, catch the trains all the time around there. Yeah, there you go. You know, you're, you're across yeah. this. Um, but yeah, no, I absolutely loved it. Stoked to get a, I don't think I've had a Tasmanian wine since I've been here. So the Roaring Beach, talking about the vineyard, set up over 40 years ago, just at that time when Tasmania was a bit of a hidden gem, you'd say maybe um, from a tourism point of view as well as produce. I think generally speaking, the fruit and veg and, and, and the, the um, meat products have always been fairly well known. But from all reports, the, the wine scene wasn't as strong at that point, certainly for red possibly for, for a nice white might be a little different, uh, but it's very much considered now uh, it's grown into a homegrown classic surrounded by that rugged sea line and the cleanest rainfall and air in the world. Did you know that about Tasmania, Mark? Cleanest air. Yep. And uh, so, so you went for a South African wine this time around. Uh, I did. Yeah. It's called the Arabella. Um, and uh, 
it, the Arabella takes its name, obviously, from the beautiful Arabian horses, uh, which yeah, it's fertile pastures and are a great love of the Devet family. There you go, winemaking. Um, and the thing is, it's got uh, flavours, so succulent flavours of ripe plum and black currant enhanced mm-hmm. by hints of coffee and chocolate. Coffee? So, yeah, so there's a couple of things to this one um, that how I've been able to compare this to a player. And, and it's a pretty, it's an easy giveaway because obviously we just had him on the show. So I'm going to say it to the front line. It's Brian D. No, but when I, when, I, when I read the back of this, the label, and I've obviously tasted the wine, and it, you know, the, the whole Arabian horse theme, Big Bri was like that. Big galloping in off people's shoulders, in behind, a lot quicker than people gave him credit for. Um, you know, very elegant with his feet, like an Arabian horse will be, with its hoofs, you know, it's dancing sure. around, prancing around the, uh, the arena. Yeah. And the fact that it's got hints of coffee, and I had many coffees with Bri when we were together at Middlesbrough, so hence the reason why I'm going to compare this bottle of wine to Brian D. Well, I appreciate the, the, the love that you've given him, and, and sort of it really makes sense that, that we've used him for this episode, but that was pretty average, mate. I think I don't want to say oh, he's the only footballer you could think of at the moment, like under pressure, because we've just had him on, but no, I think it, it might be my about, turn. It wasn't about that. I thought it was pretty good. I like Arabian horse, big, quick, yeah. galloped in behind the defenders. I don't know what you're on about. And, and, and you drank a lot of coffee together. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no, absolutely. No, 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 I'm with okay. you. Come on, okay. Smarty Pants, what have you got? Smarty Pants, yeah. <laughs> don't, you, don't you swear at me, Mark. <laughs> watch, watch, watch your mouth, buddy. Uh, so few few key aspects to this one. Uh, if you take it away from not just the flavours, but just some of the, the key words that I've mentioned, a nice homegrown gem, uh, which, is, which was the big one for mine. Um, now, I tried to think of any professional Tasmanian football players, but bizarrely, I was the only one. Um, uh, hey, whoa, 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 professional, you said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got paid once. I, I was paid once. Oh, so that, that classes you as being professional. Was it, yeah. your, was it your only paying job at that time? Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And you worked full-time playing football, so you uh, trained no, five no, no. days a week? Uh, three days a week, Tilford Zebras. I got $80 so, so, a game. So you were semi-professional. Yeah, true. Good point. No, well, I didn't have go. a job. So that was the only, my means of... So that Still semi-professional, three days a week. That's right. only, that's only like, you're only part-time. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on. Homegrown gen, uh, surrounded by rugged coastline. Now, this coastline... Uh, you'll agree straight away is completely different to Tasmanian coastline, um, admittedly, but it is on a coast. And um, when I think of a homegrown gem, uh, I think of a lot of players, but there's in terms of right now, where we're at in the Premier League, there's one person in particular that I would consider to be the biggest homegrown gem. Um, and he spent a lot of time with, that, with their academy, uh, therefore making it, allowing for a longer ripening time which was really important with this pinot because it um the area of of tasmania where this is made tamar valley it's got some um, really really cool air which apparently for pinots makes for a longer period of the year to ripen the the, the grapes so this guy's been around for a long time and is starting to really ripen um, i think it's pretty safe to say he's already ripened choose your dragon this out <laughs> I'll, I'll, end, I'll end it then 
TAA. <laughs> what do you reckon, Trent Alexander? Oh, you don't. You don't have to like spit the dummy now. Come on, you just try to make me feel bad because you reckon mine was rubbish, and you what try to it? make it. You give. You're giving it a big, your best big one. story. You're giving a big story, and I'm yeah, like, yeah. Well, I, I've done a bit of research. I've you know I've taken notes. You know, so yeah, Trent Alexander Arnold. What do you, What do you think? Okay, that's not bad. So that's two weeks in a row now that I've been able to deliver a guest onto this show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember the last time that you actually were able to deliver anyone. Uh, but, and I don't expect it to change. I don't expect it to change. So I, I, can, I can assume that I'm going to be doing the same thing for the next couple of weeks in the foreseeable yep. future of that, and that matter. So I thought today I enjoyed again today's uh, conversation last week. Stephen Warnock was great fun. Brian Dean, uh, having played with him, knew exactly what he was like as a guy. So was not disappointed, of course. And I love the fact that he said, there was nothing memorable about Michael Bridges at all to mention. So that really that hit was, the spot for me. Good. Yeah. Yes. So uh, for that, you know, on that note, um, I really enjoyed this show um, and I'm looking forward to next week. And I'm wondering, just trying to think of the top of my head, who are the couple of players or ex-players who maybe ought to go on the show? I'm not going to say that out loud because I don't want to let anyone down. Um, but I'm hopeful that we'll have another guest on next week. I'm pushing for John Terry one of these days. That's the one. That's my big fish. That's my canary down to mine. You know, that's, that's when really? you know. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. That's okay. the one. But, and well, maybe Petr Cech. He'd be, prob- for me, I'd be freaking out if we got him on. Yeah, listen, you do. need to have the bar. You need to raise the bar pretty high, don't you? I mean, like, yeah. listen, go for it. Raise the bar high and hope for the best. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Enjoyed it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 